this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Ann Tucker, Professor of Law at Georgia State University. Professor Tucker's current projects examine impact investing contract terms and cash flows, indexed ESG funds, and investment companies' risk and investment strategy disclosures. Today, we will discuss her most recent article, Buyer Beware, Variation and Opacity in ESG and ESG Index Funds. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Anne. Thank you, Amelia. So let's start with the title of the paper we're discussing today, Buyer Beware, Variation and Opacity in ESG and ESG Index Funds. Now, that sounds like a rather dark and scary title. So what precisely should buyers beware of and why? Right. So I guess maybe I should start with the very first thing, which is uh, my co-author and I, Dana Brockman-Reiser, we wanted to believe that folks could save for retirement and put their capital to good work, uh, but we were also fearing that it was too good to be true. We always make this like Snackwell's fat-free cookies of the 90s or the pink ribbon yogurt campaign analogy of like, it's too good to be true. Um, and in a vastly growing sector with little regulation, we were skeptical about how ESG funds deliver, particularly when that promise is combined with um, the low cost of passive index strategies. So what we wanted to do was try and identify ways to differentiate and identify ESG funds that are delivering on the ESG promise. And we found a couple of things. It was a slightly sobering task. And one of the things that we found is that, one, it's really op opaque. It's hard to identify when there's real ESG delivery. And then also that most of the time investors are getting the ESG that they pay for. Okay, and I'd like to dig into how you arrived at that conclusion that you get the ESG that you paid for a little bit more. But before we do, can you define ESG investing for us? Sure. So there's no singular definition of ESG investing beyond the three acronyms of E for environmental, um, S for social, and G for governance. And these are factors that sit on top of or go beyond traditional investment metrics of asset class, risk, return, and fees. So they're saying essentially that these are additional uh, metrics upon which to evaluate an investment opportunity. Okay, so taking that into account, and that was definitely a hardball question because nobody can define <laughs> ESG, which is why we created this course. Uh, but I'd like to understand more about how you arrived at your conclusion. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about your methodology? Sure, so, and I should say that we characterize our study as a case study. So we're using it for descriptive account. There's not, uh, there's not a causal link. What we were trying to do is rather than intuit what we thought was happening, we wanted to observe it with a sample of ESG funds. So to do so, we identified top ESG funds using a combination of, of assets under management and ESG ratings. And then we identified a group of index ESG funds, again, using some outside sources, a combination of the air quotes top 10 to 20 ESG funds, finding ones that are co-listed and using that as our, as our second sample. And then we looked in our fund families for ESG and ESG passive. And if we could identify a non-ESG comparison fund in the same asset class and the same fund family, we included that in our, 
and our non-ESG comp. The idea there is that if ESG is different, then we should definitely see that within the same fund family in the same asset class. And so that gives us a three-way comparison between the types of funds. And then once we had our sample of funds, we looked at five key indicators. Um, what is their disclosed ESG strategy? So we looked at the summary prospectus and the full prospectus for their description of ESG investing. We looked at their voting records on three ESG, sort of um, unarguable ESG um, votes, on climate change, gender diversity, and on political spending. Uh, so we looked at their voting on those proposals. We looked at their, their top portfolio holdings, so the companies in which those funds are invested. We looked at their fees, and then for the index funds, we also looked at their tracking errors. Okay, so let's move to where you begin your inquiry uh, by focusing on how ESG investing has been operationalized. And you alluded to this just now, that you draw a distinction between passive and active ESG. Can you help us understand why that distinction mm -hmm. matters? Sure, so um, two things. So if we think about ESG as an umbrella, um, a majority of that is going to be active strategies where a manager is picking funds and reviewing each investment um, for the particular fund. On the other side of that spectrum is going to be our passive funds. And there the strategy is not depend, or the investment decision is not based per portfolio company, but rather the fund is created subject to an ESG index. So it is a predetermined number of companies and the fund simply invests in those predetermined companies. And so with the passive strategies, um, the big distinction is this predetermined set of companies and then um, also the lower fees that are associated with investing because a an individual investment decision is not required to maintain the fund. So how does that pose ch special challenges, the, the fact that these funds are passive? So, right, and passive investing is a huge trend um, across the board, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It offers low fees, and fees have um, historically the greatest impact on an individual investor's return over their lifetime of savings. So low fees are great, and passive products provide that. Um, it, there's something uh, almost antithetical about ESG and passive, because one of the ideas is that one of the ways that you can be an ESG investor is through active governance and prompting and encouraging and prodding a company to be better in terms of its environmental footprint, to be better in terms of its inclusion and diversity policies, to be more transparent in how they govern um, and participate uh, in, in the larger society. So there's something antithetical about that with ESG. The other piece is um, we normally think of passive as taking a share of like the S&P 500 or um, a share of um, the of Fortune 500 companies. And so it's this, it's an objective external measure and the fund says, we're just gonna take a, an, we're gonna be fully exposed to whatever that market is or whatever that measure is. But those same objective standards don't exist in the ESG space. And the same way that you and I can't come up with the definition of ESG, there's not a, a global ESG standard where these are ESG companies and these are not. So each of the indices supporting a passive company is proprietary 
and it's opaque. It's, it's unclear what companies go into that particular index. And so the um, particular index providers are the ones that create these indices and the funds are paying those providers for the essentially the list of companies. Um, and that's different in in nature than when we think of a like an S and P five hundred fund. Okay, that's a very um, helpful clarification. And one thing that I loved about your paper is how you delved into the supply side. But let's start with the demand side because I'd okay. I'd love for our audience to have an appreciation of you know why your paper matters so much in this moment and. Um, just if you could describe the impressive growth of ESG investing and give us a sense of the scale. Sure. Yes. So, the, and this is what really captured our attention around this is the massive fund flows into ESG products and the proliferation of ESG products. So global assets, now this is before, um, before global upset due to a pandemic, but global assets before the crisis were at $30 trillion. And part of 20. Um, sorry, at the start of 2020, there were 300 funds um, that have the ESG label where there were less than 100 in 2014. So the space has has tripled in a short period of time. Um, it's also, a, we see proliferation of ESG products and in institutional investors' portfolios and in 401k offerings. So over 30% of institutional investors have ESG exposure. Um, that's a big change from when we I started looking at mutual funds um, maybe eight, 10 years ago. Uh, it's also part of a larger stakeholderism push. And we see this with like the BlackRock, Larry Fink, urging companies to be more attentive to these issues. The Business Roundtable's uh, statement on the purpose of corporations. And essentially this notion that ESG is creeping into, to the extent that there's an investing zeitgeist. <laughs> um, ESG is certainly a part of that. And um, we think when we think about sort of this growth, and this is fund flow growth, we were curious about what some of those drivers behind the growth might be. Um, so, of those of those drivers, then um, I I think there's clearly a, a shift in individual investors' preferences. And we see that particularly among millennial investors, so folks acquiring new wealth through either income or for, through interfamilial wealth transfers. Um, we also see a shift in intermediaries. I already mentioned the number of, of um, investment menus that offer ESG options, but also if you think about family offices that, that manage wealth for high net wealth, individuals um, in an effort to provide value, there's a greater push on ESG. We also see Southern Wealth Funds, um, EU pensions, a huge driver at the forefront of this. Um, insurers are exposed to ESG and then endowments and foundations that are able to make um, PRI, so program related investments. Uh, that those are some of the some of the other drivers in addition to individual investor preferences for ESG exposure. So some of the drivers on the demand side that you've identified are large asset managers and pension funds. And while those um, large asset managers and pension funds are 
termed passive investors, they are actively engaging on ESG issues, as we've heard from other guests on the ESG beat. Um, how does your theory square with that? Sure. So even when um, even when a fund is a passive ESG fund, so they may not have the resources to allocate for that fund to uh, be a, to strong arm corporate management or really push for a resolution. Um, one thing we have to remember is that each individual fund is a part of a fund family, and so I, I the analogy I use in my mind is like a a bunch of grapes or a cluster of grapes. And each fund is its own separate entity, but that distinction is pretty thin, like a grape skin. It encapsulates those particular assets for purposes of the structure of the fund, investment, and securities compliance, but the fund operates like a cluster of grapes. And so to the extent that there is a passive ESG fund that's a part of BlackRock or a part of Vanguard, that larger institution, the fund family level, um, the, the, the advocacy and the representation uh, comes from the fund family. And so I think even in the passive ESG side, if they're part of a larger fund family that has a history of, of closed door, back channel, um, corporate managerial pressure to push ESG agendas, I think that still happens through when it's acting as the cluster of grapes rather than the individual grape. It's the worst analogy. I've got to come up with a better one, but it's like what pops into my mind every time. I think that that analogy is terrific and it really helps us understand the distinction between the fund, the fund family, and why engagement on ESG issues by the fund family or the entire cluster of grapes um, <laughs> does affect that individual ESG fund. So thank you for that terrific analogy and for that cl clarification. Um, so the demand side has gotten some attention, um, although you've delved into it. Um, very deeply in your paper, but what I loved about your paper is your articulation of the supply side. Can you tell us a bit more about what's driving the incentives for providing more ESG products? Sure. So this is this is interesting, right? So the demand is this idea that investors are clamoring for these types of products. But there's also incentives um, for funds to be creating these, these products. Um, I think that a couple of them um, are just smart business organization strategies like generating goodwill, marketing, and name brand recognition. So even if you're not going to invest in my ESG product, maybe you care that I have an ESG, an ESG product in the fund family, or maybe you really like my ESG focused commercials, or you might pay attention to that in print, um, even if you're going to invest in a traditional products. So I think that there's sort of traditional strategic incentives to do so. Um, I think that there are other incentives from the fund's perspective as well. There's been a massive fund flow into passive um, investment vehicles, which I, as we talked about earlier, are great for individual investors. But if you're a fund, you make money on your fees and your fund flows. And if you're getting massive fund flows out of your higher fee funds, and you're only getting new um, flows into your lower fee funds, you're losing money. So creating ESG, um, particularly ESG active funds, is one way to retain active strategy fees and to attract fund flows into your higher fee funds. Um, the other one, the 
another main reason that's much less cynical um, is that if we think about ESG as an investment strategy and not as an asset class. So in other words, like diversification is, um, is an investment strategy that applies whether I'm looking at domestic equities, foreign equities, bonds, et cetera. It's a strategy, not an asset class. If we think of ESG in a similar way that it sits on top of different types of assets class and it says we're going to look at traditional investment metrics and these other aspects because we believe that these other um, these other metrics matter, they can smooth risk and they can enhance return over time. So if it is, if ESG is a strategy that has, um, that strengthens the fund, then the fund has incentives to incorporate those strategies. And I think that there's, well, there's, I think there's early evidence that that is the case. And that's such a helpful distinction, identifying ESG as a strategy rather than a unique investment product. And it's a little bit how I think about ESG as well. I think about it as a process for mitigating risk rather than a set of discrete issue areas from plastic straws to board diversity. It's a way to operate. So I think about this of like, it's not the destination, it's how you get there. And ESG is, is not, there's not like this ESG land. It is, it is a process, it's an ethos. It is a way to evaluate. Um, and it, it brings a set of rigor to that, in, in, to that evaluative process but it's not necessarily a destination. I, I completely agree with you. Now, that framing might help explain why ESG funds have fared better in this crisis. And there's all sorts of speculation going on as to why that's happening. And I can tell you that, that some of our colleagues were almost enthusiastically saying, you know, the time for ESG has ended when the pandemic started, mm. uh, but, but we're really not seeing that. We're seeing the ESG funds being quite resilient, so far at least. Why do you think that is? Right, so I think that if, again, I mean, if we think about it as an investment strategy and as a means to diversify off balance sheet risk, um, because traditional investment metrics are very much focused on the hard assets of the fund and the exposure of the fund. But if we think about it as a way to diversify off balance sheet risks, and those include a risk to our human capital, um, our supply chain stress, uh, risks associated with climate change, um, then investing in a company with a strong with a strong ESG footprint is investing in companies that have resilience in the face of changing climates, changing markets, and even pandemics. I think the whole point about human capital is particularly, human capital and supply chains are particularly relevant um, in, our, in the current pandemic. And I think um, the climate change, thinking about ways that companies um, minimize their risk to climate change and um, minimize their contribution to climate change. I think those are perhaps more intuitive, um, but I think the pandemic has really highlighted these issues around human capital and supply chain stress. So I always like to end the ESG beat with a magic wand and a crystal ball. So I'm going to start by giving you a wand, Anne. <laughs> You've made a very compelling case about how hard it is for consumers of ESG funds to cut through the noise. I mean, you're an empiricist and it's been hard for you to cut through the noise. So if you could wave your magic wand 
and make changes that would make ESG funds less opaque, what would those changes be? And I know that you've identified legal reforms in your paper, so please include those, but what sort of self-regulation or market changes uh, would you make? Okay, so I think for the sort of step one is I think a standardized definition of ESG. And that definition can be equal parts top down, like where the SEC or a group of regulators set some parameters around what ESG means. Um, it currently exists as too much of a marketing label and it's too ripe for greenwashing. Being able to hold some shiny thing up and say, look, it's ESG, or to rebrand a fund without changing any of its investment strategies and saying, oh, we may consider other things. That is too weak of an ESG proposition and it dilutes the good and the value of the funds and the products that are that are delivering on ESG um, more strongly. So I would be a proponent for a standardized or at least a agreed set of principles around ESG investment. Um, and those can come, those can come internally from the market. Um, those can come top down from regulators. And I think as the field matures, there will be some natural narrowing coalescence around a definition. But there's certainly um, industry groups and regulators that can expedite that coalescing or that that narrowing of a definition. So that's one for me. And then I would say, if you call yourself an ESG fund, then the fund should be required to make ESG-related disclosures. Um, so to be an ESG fund, you should have some additional disclosure obligations that would be a part of the fund's prospectus in a, in a US-framed world and similar types of ESG disclosures, the EU already requires some aspect of that. Um, but here I would focus not necessarily, we often focus disclosures on the portfolio companies, um, but I think here the issue of transparency is imperative at the fund level, that the fund disclose what its ESG process is. And like for an example is if they oppose an ESG resolution, they should have to state why. Um, so I'm certain that not every climate change resolution is a good one, but if you vote against it as an investor, I would like to be able to know why, or as a researcher, I would like to be able to know what was wrong with that particular proposal, um, rather than just going through individual records and seeing, you know, you, you supported this or you did not. So those would be, um, those would be two areas where I think, um, I, I think that would help in both transparency and it would minimize the opportunity for greenwashing of funds. And if you minimize the greenwashing, then you create more space for the funds that are doing, that are delivering on, on their ESG promise. Right now, without those two components, the funds that are providing real ESG investment opportunities are um, the not, like the ESG light funds are essentially free riding on the goodwill that they're doing. Um, and I would rather have folks that want to invest in ESG have clear market signals about where to put their money. Um, and the other thing that I would say is uh, I, I would be particularly interested in either registration or regulation of index providers. And that goes across the markets for both ESG and non-ESG products. I gave the example earlier about the S&P 500, but truly there are as many different variations of of index providers or indices in the market as you can think of. And um, that then puts a lot of power in the hands of the index providers 
and it adds another layer that makes it opaque. It makes it really hard to see what's going on. And so registration of index providers, um, transparency as to index composition would be my would be sort of my my other component of my magic wand, I think. And then I would say maybe one last thing, and that is I just I just thought of this. Um, I would love a world where if a um, like a 401k or defined contribution plan provider, they have an obligation to provide balanced funds. And so none would offer a, f a menu without a bond or without a money market or a target date because these are all considered the norm. So I would love to have a norm evolve where you like no one would have a, an, a retirement plan menu without an ESG option. So I would like that 30% number to be 100%. That's my, that's my magic wand moment. Well, I share that goal, Anne. Um, so now um, we're going to end with your crystal ball. Where do you see the future of ESG funds headed in the short term? I see, I see continued strong growth uh, in terms of fund flows um, to the extent that there's any new money flowing into markets. I see stable returns, um, which I think is also more important um, in long-term investing exposure than periodic market-beating returns. Um, and I see growing empirical evidence on this idea that when we look beyond balance sheet risks, we get a greater and more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of risk that helps us build a more sophisticated and durable portfolio. I like your use of the word durable. It reminds me of a word that's being used a lot lately, which is resilience. The word mm -hmm. returns is increasingly being replaced with the word um, resilient. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I've learned so much and um, your paper is terrific. Um, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Amelia. It's always fun to get to talk about these projects and it's always fun to get to talk to you. So this was a real treat for my day. Thank you. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.